Welcome to Around the Waves here on KCOU and 88.1 FM Columbia, and happy Friday. I'm your host, Luke Vitale, alongside me is my co-host, Ben Schmidt. Ben, how are we doing on this fine Friday? Doing fantastic. Excited for a fun weekend with baseball, getting back into the swing of things, and then obviously uh, March Madness going on. One of the greatest days of the year was yesterday, and another slate coming up today, so it should be exciting. It's definitely March. A lot is going on in the sports world, so let's get going here. First things first, some news on Mizzou sports. Mizzou women's basketball season concluded after falling to Drake in overtime of the opening round of the Women's National Invitation Tournament, 83-78. Their season is now finished. Mizzou baseball heads to number four Vanderbilt for the opening weekend of SEC action, riding a three-game winning streak and a 12-2 record. Meanwhile, the Commodores enter the season, the series rather, on a 13-game winning streak. First pitch is scheduled for tonight at 6 o'clock Central Time. Number 18, Mizzou softball hosts number 14, Northwestern, Stanford, and Bull State for the Mizzou Classic that was originally supposed to start today, but due to the rain, it was canceled and it will begin tomorrow. Missouri looks to climb the rankings after a bragging rights sweep on the road at Illinois. All right, let's go here. Ben, baseball, Mizzou baseball specifically, through the the Tigers, they have started very strong. They faced only one currently ranked team, which is number 25, Gonzaga, but they lost. Vanderbilt swept Missouri in a weekend series in 2021, and the Commodores are 22-4 against the Tigers all time. So I'm going to start with this question. Going into tonight, do you believe that this this Tiger squad is for real? I think it's really tough to tell. I'm going to go with no right now just because um, we haven't seen them in, in a, a large amount yet of good competition. Obviously, at the Gonzaga game, and I'm not taking a ton of stock in that loss because they did play really well and then just had a blow-up inning um, in the seventh or eighth inning that lost them that game. So I'm not taking a ton of stock in that loss because they played well enough to win that game for a large portion, but still. I mean, when you look at their schedule, they play a very, like, they, there's a common theme where they jump out to an early lead, and it's not necessarily off of them hitting consistent home runs or or hit after hit. Um, they're taking advantage of other teams' mistakes, tons and tons of walks and hit by pitches and stuff like that. And you're not going to get that when you're facing Vanderbilt. I love some of the names in this lineup. I think Josh Day is having a really good season at the top. Torrin Montgomery just continues to be an RBI machine, especially in the first inning. And, and there's some guys there that you can trust at the top of the lineup. But against a Vanderbilt team coming up this weekend, you're not going to get the 10-11 walks a game that we've seen them get multiple times this season. That's just not going to happen. Even for a Vanderbilt team, it's obviously nowhere near as good as they, they they were in the past with Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. Um, it's 
not the same team, but it's still Vanderbilt. They're a pitching machine, um, and they're not going to give you those 10 to 12 walks a game and then plenty of mental errors. So I, I, I think the philosophy will have to change if we want to see them continue to take step forward. Um, and in a three-game series this weekend in Nashville, I don't expect them to win the series. Um, I, and honestly, I think even winning just one out of three, I think would be a kind of an accomplishment, um, especially against the number four Vanderbilt team. But uh, uh, right now I'm going to go with the Tigers aren't for real. Uh, they um, there, There's some decent matchups as you look ahead. I mean, I, I like seeing Spencer Miles go here tonight as long as the game gets played. I know there's rain coming, but uh, um, we'll, we'll see. Against an SEC East favorite in Vanderbilt, it's it's going to be tough, especially Vandy all-time against this Tigers team is 22-4. and four. So if that doesn't tell you, I mean, Vanderbilt kind of owns Mizzou. So I, I'm not expecting a whole lot this weekend. It would be nice to see them win even one to take kind of a step up from where they've been in the past. We're just consistently getting swept. But expectations are low for this series, and I, I, I need to see some more of them against SEC play to really say they're legit. I, I don't think the record is completely true at this point in time. But who knows? Maybe... Maybe uh, it's a different team and they keep riding the hot streak, but I just can't say that right now. I love your answer. That is a great answer. See, people do not understand that Mizzou has not played anyone besides Gonzaga. Everyone else they should have beat, that's fine with me. They have played very good. Don't get me wrong. They've been playing really well. I mean, this series is going to come down to strength versus strength. We understand, like you said, about Vanderbilt's dominant, pit, dominant pitching. Obviously, it's not the Jack Lighters of the world. It's not the Kumar Rockers of the world. But they still have the arms to win games. I mean, the Commodores, we look at it right now. They have a 2.07 ERA. Missouri averages nine runs a game. That's fine. we all seen it. But I will say this. Gonzaga has really good pitching. And the Tigers, t- and they, they chase that starter. After I think it was I believe it was five innings, but we got to understand something here. Actually, it was five runs and three innings. I apologize for that. But we need to understand something here. When you are in a game, and the game is still going on, you cannot you cannot take your foot off the gas, especially when it comes to the bullpen. Because if when we look at the bullpens from Missouri and Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt has the arms to get the job done. Heaven forbid that their starters uh, suffers. I can't say the same thing about Missouri. I can't say that. I mean, we understand that the Spencer Miles of the world, the Trousers of the world, the Frankie Landers of the or the Landers of the world. We understand that. But Vanderbilt can definitely swing the bats. This isn't this is not a surprise. They average 7.75 runs a game. That's nothing special or nothing special. That's nothing that's not a surprise to me at all. But in order for Missouri to win these games, they're going to need their starters like Spencer Miles, to go deep into these games. And they cannot rely heavily on this unproven bullpen. They're not going to win games. Now, obviously, you got Spencer Miles, who's going to be starting tonight. He's definitely going to have that extra motivation for the series because he got absolutely annihilated last year. I mean, last year, I'm not kidding you, Ben, he gave up six runs and 11 hits it and was, five and a third. It that was ugly. Was disastrous. Yeah. I mean, we look at his ERA right now, 1.88, and he finished last year, or actually he started last year at the 7.01, and right now it's 1.88. So that's a definitely a big improvement. I'm not going to say it isn't. But let's get, let's, let's get the facts straight here. Missouri had 15 wins off last season. They already have 12 in 14 games. So I got to give, give props where props are due. I'm going to stand down when it comes to that because I got to admit, it is really good. 
but they are going to be faced with competition after this Vanderbilt series because you got Arkansas right after, who's number third in the country, and then you got Ole Miss, who's number one right now. So it's definitely going to be something to be looking forward to. I think the Tigers, with their grit and their aggressiveness, I really like it. Definitely they do a great job of stealing bases, 30 and 33 attempts. Obviously, you got Vanderbilt, who's 11 for 17. They're not exactly the base-stealing type of team. Obviously, you got Dominic Keegan, who is great at throwing runners out. Don't get me wrong. But I will say this, Enrique Bradfield, who absolutely torched the Tigers last year, is going to be back, and he's going to be stealing bases. you got Spencer Jones, you got Carter Young, you got Davis Diaz. These dudes are speed demons. They're going to be able to get the run game going when it comes to stealing bases, and obviously when you got dudes in the bullpen, you got dudes like Patrick Riley, you got Hunter Owen, you got Christian Little, you got the junior Thomas Schultz. We've seen all these names from last year. It is nothing different. You got the freshmen involved, and obviously tonight you're gonna have to verse. Uh, it's gonna. I think it's Austin or no, Christian Chris McEvlin, who's gonna be starting tonight for the Commodores. Obviously, he's no Jack Leiter, he's no Kumar Rocker, but he's still a pretty damn good pitcher with the changeup and the curveball. So. I honestly think if the Tigers can keep it close, I consider that a win. But I just do not see them winning a series. Yeah, and I, I think regardless how the game goes, they can keep it close. I will say, I think there's kind of a formula for, for a Mizzou team to win against a team like Vanderbilt. Whereas with Vanderbilt, you talked about they can hit and they can pitch. I mean, the stats show that. I don't have to go over there to keep telling you they can pitch and hit. But for Mizzou, I think the way that they would have to win this game, and I, it's, it plays somewhat into their strength so far this season, is they would have to get out to a big early lead and then continue to, to, to keep building on that as the game goes on. Because mm-hmm. they can't head into the 6th or 7th um, tied or up by one or two because the bullpen just isn't going to hold a team that's hitting 327 for three innings and, and win you a one-on game, or at least I don't think it will. So, I mean, if, if you look at they've been Mizzou has been scoring runs in the first inning, but maybe instead of, if you get Day and Luke Mann on the top of the lineup, instead mm-hmm. of a torn Montgomery sack flying RBI single, you're going to need a torn Montgomery three-run home run. Exactly. So I think you're going to have to get up big early, and, and that's going to have to do what's going to take, because I, I can guarantee you, regardless of whether you're up five or you're up one, Vanderbilt's going to score away. It's just, are you up enough to be able to hold off what is almost certainly going to be a late rally? Exactly. I agree with you. All right, let's go to Mizzou softball here. With the bragging rights sweep, the Tigers have work to do at the Mizzou Classic starting tomorrow with a tough contest against number 12th in the nation, Northwestern. Missouri has hit 35 home runs over its last 13 games. So, Ben, let me ask you here. How do the Tigers sort of regain this sort of momentum to beat these top 25 teams in the nation? I, I, First of all, I think they need to get on the board win-wise in SEC. They've only played two SEC games, and they were both losses to Tennessee. One about a run rule. It was just a really ugly contest, and the other one run loss. So as good as they've been this year, um, I don't want to talk about like the morale and stuff like that, but I do think getting on the board and seeing at least a win in that SEC win column would do wonders for a team to kind of get some v- v- validity. You know what I'm trying to say, and, and kind of get them going that way. So I think that would help a lot. I think Lauren Kring is getting back into it would really help because obviously we saw how dominant she was a couple weeks ago with that perfect game, but but did not have a good outing whatsoever against Tennessee last weekend. So I think um, her getting back on it, and then just the team continuing to hit as a whole. Um, I, I don't, I'm not worried, even though they in, in the two Tennessee games they scored three and four runs. I'm not worried about this team consistently not hitting because we saw them come right back and score seven and ten just a couple of days later. Obviously. 
ACU is against inferior competition compared to mm-hmm. Tennessee, right. but still. So um, I think Northwestern, especially, tar- they were going to get a chance out of today. Now it's going to have to wait till tomorrow. Um, I think getting out early and getting a lead, because in both those two SEC games against Tennessee, they fell behind early, and then even in the close one, the 5-4 is just kind of trying to have to dig themselves out of it late. So I think if they can get a lead on Northwestern early and then kind of ride it to the finish, I think that would be a, a, it would go a long way. Um, because you've seen them multiple times throughout the year jump on teams like really, really early, and then it's just cruising to the finish line. So I think that I think that would be big. Um, there's there's certainly plenty to be excited for, especially with uh, Kimberly Wirt continuing to just mash home runs. Her next home run will break the Mizzou all-time home run record. Right. So I think that that, that's the kind of thing I think could bring the whole team together. She, Let's say they come out tomorrow and she hits that home run earlier to break the record. I think that's something that could help them coast to a victory and it's going to bring everyone together. So there's definitely some stuff to look forward to. There's many players I can mention, whether Kara Daly hitting seven home runs in eight games. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much fun stuff going on. It's just now turning that into wins against um, what will certainly be a tougher part of the schedule here coming up because there, there's no doubt about it. This is a good team that has high expectations, but but it's I, I I can tell you that looking at an zero and two in that important SEC win column is not is not necessarily helping right now. And they're gonna they're not gonna get a crack at it this weekend. Um, but they will here coming up in a couple weeks against Ole Miss, and and so that that I think will be huge. But to beat a a, a nationally ranked team in Northwestern, I think would also do wonders. And I think that's what they need to do tomorrow is beat Northwestern, despite it not being an SEC team, which we both know that. I feel like beating te- beating Northwestern is definitely gonna be a momentum uh, kicker, I would say, because obviously we saw what Lauren Krings did yesterday against the Illini. She did a great job. She pitched seven and two-thirds of an innings, strike, striking out seven batters. We understand that. But like you said, it's inferior competition that they beat, which I'm not trying to disrespect Illinois, but compared to Mizzou, they are inferior competition. When you look at the Brooke Wilmises of the world, when you look at the Jenner Lairds of the world, when you look at the Kara Dailies of the world, you you got to be able to start games earlier. You got to be able to get you got to be able to get the hitting going earlier. And that's what happened with Tennessee. Lauren Krings basically she had a bad game and it cost them because they didn't really get anything going until the I would say maybe the 5th or 6th inning that they didn't really get anything going. And it was too late at that point. And, and exactly. You look at the first game that they played the Illini. They didn't really get anything going until the 3rd inning. So, when you look at stuff like that, you got to be able to get the hitting going early. I'm not saying at the score run early, but what I'm saying is you got to be able to get people on base Obviously, you got Jordan Weber, you got Emma Nichols, you got Lauren Krings. These are great pitchers. We understand that. But at the end of the day, it is up to the batters to get, to basically kickstart the, uh, I would say, basically the hitting going and getting the runs. That is how you're going to win games. And I like that you mentioned um, getting it going early. It doesn't necessarily always have to mean runs. Exactly. It's getting runners on base and mm-hmm. and and forcing opposing pitchers to throw more pitches mm-hmm. and, and get get deep um, early and, and work the count. So I think that's um, very important to distinguish. It doesn't always mean um, sometimes loading the bases and even if it means zero run could be just as influential as hitting a solo home run in the first inning. Exactly. So I I think that's very important. It, at very least, puts some sort of pressure on early um, to at least give you some confidence going through. And it's not where you're going three up, three down up until the third or fourth inning. And then at that point, you're down four runs and you, there's pressure now to get it going. All right, we'll leave it at there. We're going to head to commercial break. When we get back from commercial break, NHL trade deadline news and, of course, some NBA news with Steph Curry being sidelined until the NBA playoffs. And we'll be right back with you on KCOU 88.1 FM. 
This is Lorena Hollander from the Brazilian band Diaphanis, and you're listening to KCOU Colombia. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. NHL trade deadline is three days away and the action is picking up. Most teams are waiting until the last minute to make moves as every dollar matters in the salary cap league. Taking a deeper look at the Western Conference, the Colorado Avalanche are the best team in the conference with 91 points and with the Calgary Flames trailing them by 10 points for the second seed. So we'll start with Ryan here. Should the Avalanche be favorites in the Western Conference? Hey, Ben and Luca, appreciate the question, Luca. And um, although Calgary Flames have been very, very good this season, obviously you just take a look at their top three point guys right now. You got Johnny Goodrow at 79 points, Matthew Kachuk at 71, and Elias Lindholm at 63. And again, Jacob Markstrom, he's, he's just been phenomenal for them as well. Um, obviously, he's done pretty good as well, 29 and 11 um, and yeah, it's a good, good bet that they are going to win the Western Conference. But unfortunately, I just have a team that I think is a lot better than them. And that is none other than the Colorado Avalanche. 91 points already. Uh, not even at the trade deadline. We're almost there, obviously. Um, but, you know, you you look at guys like uh, Miko Lantanen, Nathan McKinnon. Now, unfortunately, Gabriel Landeskog is injured. But I think this team is better than the Flames. And I think they come out in they they come out on top on the Western Conference. I don't see why they wouldn't. They're just so so good this year, man. All right, so we'll move on to you now, Luca. Do you think the Avalanche should be favorites in the Western Conference? They should not. Um, despite Ryan saying they do have the best record in the Western Conference, I stand down. That is a hundred percent true. However, he forgot one little part in that little soliloquy of his. The Colorado Avalanche have the second-to-worst face-off percentage in the entire National Hockey League, only in front of the Montreal Canadiens. And when it comes postseason time, you need to be winning face-offs. I mean, I understand that they have one of the, if not if not the best record of the National Hockey League right now. Obviously, you got Landis Gog, who's out, and obviously the trade deadline is approaching us, so we could definitely see a lot of good moves. They're in the, in the, in the rumors right now for Claude Giroux, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but I will say this to Mr. Ryan Walterman, who could not join us, unfortunately, today in studio. Um, the Calgary Flames, the last time I checked, are first in the West in the Pacific Division. We believed 
going into this season that the Vegas Golden Knights, the Edmonton Oilers, and some even thought the Los Angeles Kings would be better than the Calgary Flames. Obviously, injuries have done, have dealt, basically have had to uh, basically influence this. Now, obviously, the Vegas Golden Knights are an absolute disaster right now. I mean, you got Mark Stone, who's out. Max Pacioretty has been out. Robert Leonard, who's been out. I mean, you got two inexperienced goaltenders that are playing, and it's been nothing but a disaster. Obviously, you got Edmonton, who I do not trust their goalie tandem if you paid me. But getting to the Calgary Flames and why they should be the favorites in the Western Conference, we understand going into the season that Daryl Sutter, we thought, would hurt the team offensively because this dude is known for his defensive philosophy. However, it has been far from the case that this dude has, held, has basically held the offensive prowess of this team hostage because he has not. The Calgary Flames have scored 210 goals this season, which is fourth in the West, which only trails the Avalanche, the Blues, and the Wild. But what they've really excelled at, and this is in big part due to Daryl Sutter's prowess, and easily Jack Adams, uh, Jack Adams Award of the Year in my book, is their defensive play. Their 146 goals against leads the entire National Hockey League. Now, obviously, we could thank the entire defensive systems. We could do whatever we want. However... It is because of potential Vesna candidate Jacob Markstrom, like Ryan mentioned. This dude is phenomenal. I mean, I have never seen Jacob Markstrom look like this. Obviously, he was phenomenal in Vancouver. Yes, he was. But this dude has, has been something different. He's been something special. In the Flames, are only second to, Avalanche, to the Avalanche in the West. Now, he talked about some of the best talents in the West. Johnny Gaudreau, good Lord have mercy. This dude is having the best season of his career. I mean, he's Fourth in the league with 79 points. 79 points. He only trails Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Jonathan Huberto. Three humongous talents. Then we go to the other side of the puck with Jacob Markstrom. Third in both goals against average and fourth in save percentage amongst net miners in the West. He only travels Billy Husso, which Billy Husso has not started for the Blues in, in he's basically, the Blues right now are going from a 1A to 1B sort of situation with Billy Huston and Jordan Bennington. That's a discussion for a different day, though. Um, but then, it is the emergence of Andrew Manjapani. This dude is insane. I have never seen a third liner become a first liner this quick. He has helped the Flames improve, and you would never know because Sean Monaghan has been absolutely trash this entire year. He has been trash, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Flames traded him because you got dudes like Blake Coleman who've been added to this team. Tyler Toffoli was added to this team, and they just got Callie Yarncroke yesterday from the Seattle Kraken, who was another great depth piece for a third line, so I wouldn't be shocked if Sean Monaghan, that he doesn't want to play on the fourth line, to be traded. This, this team is phenomenal, but some people, I already know some people, are going to say, well, in the 2018-19 season, they won the West with 107 points, and they got and they basically got annihilated in the first round. Fair is fair. That is true. However, that was a team with Mike Smith and David Riddick between the pipes. Mike Smith, the last time I checked, is 39 years old. He's way past his prime and somehow still playing in this league. David Riddick, I have no clue where that man is right now because he's not even on this team. But having Daryl Sutter behind the bench compared to Bill Peters... I think that's a humongous difference. And adding players like the Tyler Toffoli's of the world, the Blake Coleman's of the world, having Johnny Gaudreau, having Elias Lindholm, amongst others, this team has a legitimate shot at to the Stanley Cup. And if the Flames and the Avalanche, currently constructed, 
If they play today, I have the Flames winning that series. All right, well, now let's move on a little more focused on the trade deadline that's coming up. So Claude Garot skated out as the first star in the Philadelphia Flyers' 5-4 win over the Nashville Predators on Thursday night as more than 18,000 fans saluted him for his 1,000th career NHL game and what might be his final appearance as a Flyer. Garot is expected to be moved ahead of Monday's trade deadline. So I'll ask you again here, where will Claude Garot land come Monday's trade deadline? So now we are talking about the man who just got honored with his 1,000th game played in the NHL, Claude Giroux. And obviously, this is a big, big trade target right now. A lot of teams going to be looking at him. You know, you're going to have the Lightning, maybe even the Panthers. Um, but the team that I think he is going to go to is, yep, you've guessed it, the Colorado Avalanche. I think with Landis Kong injured, he adds a lot more depth to a team that already has like uh, Nazem Kadri, um, Rantanen, McKinnon. He would just be that special plug for them. You know, with losing Landis Kong, having a guy like Claude Giroux coming in is basically just like a switch to flip. It's just like a flip because they're both just as talented. And Giroux will be on the move, no doubt about it. I think that the Avalanche owners need to throw him money, get them to the Stanley Cup, because they are a Stanley Cup contending team this year. All right, Luke, I'll go back to you now. Um, Where do you think he goes come Monday, or before Monday? I don't disagree with the Colorado, uh, Colorado Avalanche, but it is the Florida Panthers. The Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning. We just saw a couple of minutes ago. I'm not even going to look with the the Chicago Blackhawks got until after the show ends. Brandon Hagel was shipped to the Tampa Bay Lightning. One of the youngest talents in the league, 23 years of age. He has emerged as one of the biggest talents right now for the Chicago Blackhawks. Obviously with his prowess, his stick handling skills, his ability to score goals, his ability to generate assists for other players beside him. Now. The Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers. Battle of Florida. Round two this year. Book it. I mean, we understand that these two teams will be competing with one another. Tampa Bay's looking for the three-peat. Florida's looking for its first Stanley Cup since 1996. So, we understand here that Claude Giroux is one of the best talents to ever play the game of hockey. 1,000 games for one franchise. And I feel sorry for him because he never won anything with the Philadelphia Flyers. But I will say this. The fans, the city of Philadelphia, the management, he got a proper send-off. And what a night. I, I, I got to admit, the appreciation and celebration for an unbelievable human being it is phenomenal to see that. For 15 seasons, one last time to say goodbye to their captain. I got to admit, I was touched by it. They did a great job. Now, getting to where he is going to go, we understand Claude Giroux has almost basically shown the entire hockey world what he's able to do with the game of hockey. He's able to put the puck behind the goalie. He's able to use his physicality. He's able to generate scoring opportunities for his supporting cast. We get that. However, this dude with Sam Bennett, with Jonathan Huberto, with Sam Reinhardt, 
with Anthony Duclair on the wings? Oh, my man. Good Lord have mercy. And then you just got Ben Sherratt, who just went to the Florida Panthers the other night, who Montreal got fleeced in that deal. Don't get me started with that. And then you got Aaron Ekblad, your Norris-caliber defenseman. Then you got Gudis, who is basically your physicality. He's your big guy. And then you got Bobrovsky and Spencer Knight in between the pipes. You could not ask anything more than Claude Giroux to go to the Florida Panthers. This would be insanity between the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning. I hope we get to see that because that would be one of the best things for the National Hockey League. We understand that Claude Giroux is on an expiring deal. The Florida Panthers are going all in. And speaking of that, I think the Florida Panthers or whoever runs the Philadelphia or the uh, Florida Panthers Twitter. They sort of leaked something last night. The Charlotte Checkers, which is the Florida Panthers affiliate team, said Owen Tippett would be sitting last night. There was no reason why. No injury, no nothing, wasn't a healthy scratch. Interesting enough, he would be part of that package deal if Claude Giroux would go to Florida. And that is part of the reason I also think he'd be going to Florida because of that sort of alluding to the fact that, hey, I'm going to Florida, blah, 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 blah. But I got to admit, Barkov, Huberto, Duclair, oh, my Lord, this team would be filled with talent. If he goes to the Avalanche, they're still filled with talent. But going to Florida, winning their first Stanley Cup since 96, I think he's going to Florida come Monday. And then we'll move on to the last question before we're done with the NHL trade deadline talk. Um, do you guys have a team that you think will be more active at the trade deadline than originally anticipated? So Ryan answered more, so here's his answer. I like Lucas. So not so sure that this team really counts because we knew that they were going to be active at the trade deadline. But the thing is, I just think they're going to be a lot more active than other teams maybe potentially seen them being that active. And you know what? I have to go with my St. Louis Blues. Obviously, Jordan Bennington, you know, he hasn't been playing the best. Billy Husso, he's been really playing very good for them. And I think, you know... It's funny because the Blues already talked about Jordan Bennington being a trade deadline package. And some teams, you know, like maybe Vegas, maybe even Edmonton, could use him. They really need a better goalie and obviously better. It's just that that's not, you know, I'd, I'd play Leonard or, you know, Koskinen over Bennington. But if they could get a guy like Jordan Bennington uh, ahead of the trade deadline or even during the trade deadline, I think they would. The Blues really need defense. And, you know, with, especially with Bozak being out and uh, Robert Thomas and some other players being out, the Blues really need to go out there they need to get some offensive guys because on paper this team's a playoff team but they're gone after the first round I don't even think they would make it past the first round right now um the Blues are in big trouble especially like I said on the defensive end so Armstrong needs to go out there he needs to sell his pitches and they need to bring in some guys because right now the Blues really really need some help Very all right so that's the more active. I'm going to disagree with Ryan on that one. I don't think the Blues will be very that active simply because of the ca- the salary cap, which we talked about last week. And history says for itself that the Blues are not very active at trade deadlines. Now, for the less active, people that would not anticipate originally would be the Carolina Hurricanes. The, we understand that the Carolina Hurricanes want to win the Stanley Cup. They're built to win the Stanley Cup. However, they only have $1.3 million in salary cap right now. Not a lot. And if I'm the GM, Aaron w- Eric Waddell, I would not want to be trading future pieces of this team or even draft capital 
to basically say, I'm going for the Cup this year. Because we saw over the offseason, he basically matched an offer sheet for Jesper Kataniemi of the Montreal Canadiens one year for $7 million. I don't really think he would want to do something like that again and give up more assets. Now, you obviously have a dominant line already with Fechnikov, Aho, Table Terra Vinen. We understand this. You even got dudes like Jerry uh, Jack Dreary in the minor leagues. And obviously you got dudes like Steven Lorenz. We've seen this all season, and we've seen what they're able to do when it comes to big games. They disappear when it comes to scoring. And that worries me. Worries me a lot. Frederick Anderson, the dude's phenomenal this year. He's Vesna candidate worthy. I don't think he'll win it. But when it comes to the postseason, we saw it last year when the Carolina Hurricanes disappeared, couldn't be found with their scoring talent, and they lost. Now, obviously, you got dudes that are able to get the job done on the third line as well with a Nino Nino rider. You got a Jordan Stahl. You got a very quiet but relatively fast in Jesper Fast. No, that's not supposed to be a pun. It's actually his name. Um, but I will say this. They better add someone on defense. They got to add someone on defense. I like Jalen Chatfield. I like Ethan Bear. But at the same time, you're going to have to add somebody else. Now, they're probably not going to go after Jacob Chickern because that dude is going to be basically fetching a Jack Eichel-like return, which I just do not see that happening. We understand that he's 23 years old. We understand he's a two-way player. We also understand he's on a cheap deal. We get that. But at the end of the day, the Carolina Hurricanes cannot possibly get a player that costs as much as them. You can obviously go after a Kelvin DeHaan. You can go after a Kevin Miller. Someone like that that would add more depth to the defense. And I just don't think, come Monday, if the Carolina Hurricanes don't make a deal or just stand put, I wouldn't be too shocked. All right, we're going to move on now to the NBA now. Ben's going to get involved here. The Golden State Warriors star Steph Curry is expected to return for the start of the Western Conference playoffs with a left foot sprain. Curry suffered the injury in a collision with Boston Celtics guard Marcus Smart on Wednesday night. So, Ben, with Steph Curry's injury, how will this impact the Warriors down the stretch? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting um, and could be kind of catastrophic for the Warriors. I mean, um, if you think way back when Steph was first making his way into the league before he became the multiple-time MVP and the multiple-time champion, there was a major issue with his ankles. I mean, there were some people who think that the Warriors may have reached at that pick and 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 that it, was, it wasn't was going to work out because he couldn't stay on the court because of the ankle injuries. He had multiple of them in his first couple of years. And then um, he's just been obviously so good, and I'm not disputing the pick whatsoever. It was more than worth it, and the ankle injuries had basically gone away um, for, for all these championship runs. Well, now a pretty big big one is back for a team that kind of seemed close to gearing up for for what could be a deep playoff run. Um, so as of right now, he's still out indefinitely, and it's looking like he's going to avoid surgery. Basically, um, according to one of the doctors close to where if any surgery is needed, Curry would be out for the whole playoffs. But um, if if it's going to avoid surgery, which it's looking like, then the, the hope would probably be to get him back just before the playoffs, if not at the start of the playoffs. And here's what's so crucial about that. There's, a, there's many different reasons why this is huge for the Warriors. First of all is this is a team that has not played with what they believe is their core group has not gotten the chance to really all play and mesh well together. Um, you talk about the core group of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, who finally came back off the injuries, Draymond Green, 
the uh, the role that Jordan Poole has established for himself, James Wiseman in his second year, that core group has not gotten the chance to play together because Clay missed so much time and then didn't come back until a couple months ago. Draymond has been out hurt. Um, other injuries and players in and out of the lineup. Wiseman has been out hurt. So they have not gotten the chance to all play together and be on the court at the same time. And just as it was looking that way, that they were all going to come back together and have about a month time frame to figure it out before the playoffs, Steph gets hurt, and best-case scenario right now is probably going to miss that month that they were going to have. So I think that right now, even to not even looking at the standings, is the most important thing because to expect, even if Steph comes back, for, let's say first round of the playoffs comes back, and they come back and they're going to face a team like the Timberwolves, the Clippers, maybe the Nuggets, depending on what seed they are. Even though those are teams, um, it's with the Clippers hovering at 500, then the Nuggets, Timberwolves are a little bit better. To expect that entire group of five to figure it all out in the first round of a playoff series, I think is a lot to ask because I think basketball, just as maybe even more than other sports, chemistry is so important. The ball movement, who's taking the shots, the plays, I think to ask them to figure that out all out on the fly, I think it's going to be really, really tough. I mean, we've seen plenty of times with these really good teams. Um, I'll point to the the, the the big three back in Miami with LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. Obviously, there's not the big three like that in Golden State, but it took that group of players a good couple of months to really figure out how to play together. And I know, I know Steph and Clay and Draymond have been playing together for years, but it is a new style of basketball for the Warriors right now. And they really needed that month, in my eyes, that was going to be coming up to figure it out and get going going into the playoffs because um, they're they're four and six in their last ten and they they've been kind of sketchy on the road. So I especially with them as a three seed right now, they're going to have to go on the road, especially against the Phoenix Suns team. So I really think they needed that month. So that's number one right now. The fact that um, it's looking very very likely that they're going to go into the playoffs um, with kind of and you've seen plenty of times where we say oh they're getting everyone healthy right at the start of the playoffs and they flop in the first round because they didn't have time to work it all out before they even got there um you can you can talk about it in all sports so i think that's crucial and that's not even talking about the standings because now i'll get to that so right now warriors are only a game back of the grizzlies for the two seed but also only three and a half up on both the jazz and the mavericks for the fourth and fifth seed so they're in a very very tight race and especially now you go look at it i i still think the warriors have plenty of good players to be fine in the stretch but there's more than it's more than possible that they go on a little bit of a slide here and goes up that three and a half game lead and fall to a fourth or fifth seed. And I think that's absolutely crucial because first of all, if they had Steph in the lineup, if they catch the Grizzlies and only one game back, um, then you're looking at a potential second round series where the Grizzlies have to come to California for four games instead of only three games. And not that going to Memphis and playing in their home stadium is the most raucous environment, but I think it can't be understated how how loyal the Golden State fans are. And how hard it is! How hard it is for multiple years to play in that arena and win in that arena. I mean, Warriors are twenty nine and eight that are at home this season, so that's one of the best home records in the West. So that could come up huge potentially if the Warriors one don't catch the Grizzlies or two slide down past the Jazz and Ma- Jazz and Mavericks, and that's a very realistic possibility. I mean, the one they're both three and a half back, but with the Mavericks specifically, the Mavericks have the fifth easiest schedule left in the entire rest of the regular season, and they already have a three one um, series lead against the Warriors this season. So they own tiebreaker. So Warriors' schedule right now is ranked 19th, which isn't necessarily terrible. They're they're not in the bottom 
th- uh, the third toughest part of the league, but it's not compared to the fifth toughest that the Mavericks are going on. So that's another thing to look at. Uh, and, and let throw me t- in let there. me just intervene here for a yeah. second. Um, I'm looking at their schedule right now. The Warriors. Um, ben, you would find this very interesting. When we're on spring break, so Monday, March 28th, March 30th, the Wednesday, and then Saturday, April 2nd. That order at Memphis. At home versus Phoenix, and then at home versus Utah. That's a tough pregame stretch. That is a very, and if you look at it especially, that would have been tough with Steph Curry exactly. because Phoenix is the best team by far, mm-hmm. and Memphis is, is a is a team on the up and up. So even with Steph, they maybe lose two out of three or three out of three of those games. I mean, right now, I mean, they they have a better record than the Jazz, but are they better than a Jazz team that would potentially be healthy? I don't necessarily know that. So that's, I mean, like, if you look at that right there, if they have a bad week right then, that could be enough just in a stretch of, of five or six days to cause them to slide to the fourth or fifth seed. And then obviously, if you're the fifth seed, you're not hosting a playoff series in the second round. So I think those two things, the chemistry and the standings, are what are going to make this so huge um, because this is not the same dominant Warriors team of three or four years ago. I mean, I think they really need those home playoff games um, coming to California. 18 and 15 isn't a bad road record, but it's not the 24 and 12 of the Grizzlies of the 27 and 6 of the Suns. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, Luca, because you talk about sliding three and a half games. I mean, if you have a bad week right there, that could be enough to almost completely eliminate. Thankfully for the Warriors, if they do figure it out down the stretch. They do have a soft spot. Their final four games to close it out are Kings, Lakers, Spurs, and Pelicans. I mean, they should sweep those four teams regardless of right. where Steph is playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, those that's that's four pretty bad teams. But especially if you look at that, there's a good chance that by the time they get to that Lakers game that LeBron isn't playing. If the if the Lakers have fallen out, I can guarantee LeBron shuts it down. So, um it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see. I think a lot of it hinges on uh, some results of the Curry testing with the ankle are expected back in the next uh, next day or two. So, like I said, if it's surgery, he's obviously done for the whole year, and you can kind of kiss the Warriors' title hopes goodbye. Um, but if it's something that keeps him out even into the first round of the playoffs, that that puts them in a really tough spot because, the, I mean— the Suns are obviously really, really good, but the Grizzlies with John Morant and the group that they've gotten there, the Jazz are always – I mean, you looked at last year's playoffs, even though the Jazz lost, every game that was played in Utah was a fantastic environment. The Jazz fans showed out, so I don't think the Warriors want to have to go play play there either and face Donovan Mitchell in his house. So it's it, it'll be very interesting to see that the, whether or not the Warriors have a chance to compete for a championship this year could very much depend on the next 24 hours, what we hear about the Steph Curry injury uh, results. All right, we'll leave it at that. We're going to head to commercial break. When we get back from break, some NFL talk between the AFC West and Baker Mayfield. We'll be back with you on KCOU 88.1 FM Columbia. Do you like helping people? Do you think that sexual health education is important at Mizzou? Do you want to grow as an individual? Yeah, Lisa, that's definitely me. You need to apply to Sexual Health Advocate Peer Education, SHAPE. SHAPE is saving the world one barrier method at a time. Their peer educators give presentations all over campus in the Columbia area on topics ranging from abstinence and healthy relationships to anatomy, STIs, and barrier methods. How do I apply? Just Google Shape Mizzou. You can go to studenthealth.missouri.edu and apply online. Wow, thank you so much, Lisa. I want to be a shape here. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run. Break on through to the other 
And welcome back to Around the Waves on KCOU 88.1 FM, Columbia, the student voice of your Missouri Tigers. I'm Luca Vitale, alongside me, Ben Schmidt. Let's go on to some NFL coverage here. The AFC West has been loading up on talent with the likes of Russell Wilson heading to the Denver Broncos and Devontae Adams heading to the Las Vegas Raiders. The LA Chargers have been quite busy as well with new additions of Khalil Mack, J.C. Jackson, Sebastian Joseph Day, and Austin Jack, uh, Johnson. Rather. With the Chiefs being a lock to make the AFC Championship over the last four years, the AFC West is now easily the most stacked division in the NFL heading into the next season and is easily maybe one of the most talented divisions in NFL history. So, Ben, easily my favorite segment for today. Currently constructed, which team will win the AFC West? I'm glad that you mentioned that this has a chance to be the most talented division in NFL history because uh, if lives up to hype, it certainly can be. I mean, how many times have we looked at a division in history and Derek Carr, who I think you can argue is in the 10 to like 12, maybe 9 to 12 range of yeah. quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. He is the worst in that division. And it's hard to say that because yes. he's not a bad quarterback. No, not at all. Not at all. So it's... This is going to be a boring answer, but this is going to be, I'll believe someone will knock him off when I see it, and I'm sticking with the Chiefs, despite that they have made by far the fewest offseason additions, and here's why. Mm -hmm. I am a huge believer of the dynamic between head coach mm -hmm. and quarterback, mm -hmm. and the Chiefs in that division have the best of both. I mean, not that there are bad coaches, because I've said this multiple times, I think Nathaniel Hackett is going to be a fantastic coach. Um, uh, Brandon Staley with the Chargers is kind of unknown, and same thing with McDaniels, we'll see there what happens. Mm -hmm. Reed is far and away the best coach there. And then with quarterback, obviously you add in the addition of Russell Wilson and Justin Herbert is going to be a star in this league, but it's still Patrick Mahomes is the best QB in that division. Do I, I think it'll be much, much even it was tough for Kansas City to win it last year. Right. And it's going to be even tougher when you add in um they don't have the free sweep of Denver that they had twice a exactly. year because it's Russell Wilson. Right. And the the Chargers who split with them one one last year add just a massive amount of talent on defense. So will it be tough? Yes. Um but just right now, um, the way it's constructed, I'd like to see the Chiefs add another weapon, but still, I, I like, I just have, will continue to ride with the duo of of Reed and Mahomes until I see someone knock them off. That's Mahomes said it last year, and it came back to backfire because Herbert beat him one time, mm -hmm. but he was like, I'll believe they'll overtake me when I see it. I'm kind of right now riding with that motto. I'll believe it when I see it that someone will knock off the Kansas City Chiefs. I disagree with you. And uh, we can obviously see the Kansas City Chiefs winning this division, absolutely. In fact, I can almost see all four of these teams making the division if everything goes to plan. Without a doubt. With plan, that is. Um, but I will say this. Uh, we don't know what the Kansas City Chiefs defense is going to look like. Tyron Matthews not there anymore. We don't know what that secondary is going to look like. That's number one. And why do I say that? What do all three of those other quarterbacks have in common? A passing offense. That is what they're going to have in common with. Yes, you got Javante Williams in Denver, but I feel like they're going to throw the football more, in my opinion. Then you got Justin Herbert and the Los Angeles Chargers. They're going to throw the football more. Then you obviously got the Las Vegas Raiders. You obviously, you, yes, you got Jacobs in the backfield, but I feel like Derek Carr is going to be finding Devontae Adams and Darren Waller and those boys. So, my answer is the Los Angeles Chargers. And the reason I say that is we obviously know that Brandon Staley was one of the most best defensive minds in football when he was hired by the Los Angeles Chargers last year. However, it was the offensive side of the ball in the overall philosophy of the organization that Staley actually improved in 2021. It was not the defense. The defense was horrendous. One of the worst defensive teams in the league last year. And there was two reasons why it was terrible. Well, they lacked quality depth. 
and they were dealing with issues both on the defensive line and the secondary at the same time. Usually when that happens, you're not going to be that great of a team. And obviously you're toast, right? And the second reason, which is going to be more applicable to this year, in my opinion, is because the Chargers did not have the proper personnel to run his defensive schemes. That's my opinion. Remember, when we when he was in the, in the other Los Angeles team, the Rams, he basically built his defense by playing as little players as possible in the box, and then with that defensive line being able to penetrate to stop the bleeding with the run in the secondary that's very deep and versatile. Now, without any making any other moves, the Chargers already have the most, I would say, accomplished defensive pl- uh, defensive team in this division. I'm not I'm not going to overlook the Broncos just yet, but when you have what Braylon Staley, Brandon Staley just did, you got J.C. Jackson now in the secondary. He looked phenomenal last year at New England. The true cornerback one that they were lacking last year. And that while the defensive line has been completely rebuilt with three new starters. So you look at all that, and then the second issue I would say that matters the most here, and this is 100% true for any team, is the second year with a coach and its quarterback. We have seen this and there's plenty of examples. Joe Burrow and Zach Taylor, last time I checked, they took a big leap and went to the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid in 2019. I think they did a pretty good job in 2019, the last time I checked. Carson Wentz and Doug Peterson in 2018. Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll in 2013. Plenty of, uh, pr- plenty of other uh, examples that did not make a Super Bowl, but regardless, they all took a leap that year. And that is what I expect with Justin Herbert and Brandon Staley. Mike Williams is back. J- uh, Joshua Palmer, he's going to be back making another year of improvements. And I honestly think if Brandon Staley doesn't just believe analytics are the true answer to everything, the Los Angeles Chargers could win this division. Oh, without a doubt. And it's so hard for me to to disagree one way or the other because all four teams are so, so good. Um, I will say something that plays into the Chiefs' favor. Uh-huh. I think... Whereas I don't, I can't guarantee that the Chargers and the Chargers will fare well against the Broncos and the Raiders. I'm pretty confident that the Chiefs still sweep the Raiders and win at least one against really? the Broncos. Wow! Just I I love the addition of Devonte Adams, and I can see Devonte Adams having a monster year in Vegas. Yeah, Fresno but, State reunited, yeah, and they the two years they played together at Fresno State, Adams put up great numbers there too. Mm-hmm. So what's I'm not worried about the him falling off without Rodgers. I think whoever is saying that is just out of their mind and just wants to get get clicks. But what I will <laughs> say, I I don't I can't trust Derek Carr at Arrowhead yet. It just does not go well whenever he plays there. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Mahomes has always had a success um, traveling to when it was Oakland and then now traveling to Vegas. So I'm not trying to downplay the fact this is a much better Raiders team, but I still have some issues with that Raiders defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't love their cornerbacks. They lost Casey Hayward in the offseason. Yep. They have an offer in for Stephen Gilmore. That could change things drastically. Yep. But I have zero doubts that both times the two play that Tyree Kill could run and Travis Kelsey could run circles around that Raiders defense. So that's number one. And I, I, for whatever reason, Carr seems to have much more success when they face off against the Chargers. And I, I, I can't guarantee. I think the Raiders sweep. I think the Chiefs sweep the Raiders, and I can't guarantee that the Chargers sweep the Raiders. And even though the Chargers might be as talented, that could come back really, really huge looking at the end when you look at the division wins and coming up to the schedules. I know that's a weird way to look at it, but that's just something I, I took into account when looking at all four of these teams. You know, it's definitely going to be tough because 
I held hope up for the Chargers last season, and look what happened. Yet again, I didn't pick the Denver Broncos in Teddy Bridgewater to win, to get in the wild card. I yeah, didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do that. But let's move on now to the next football topic. Baker Mayfield has requested a trade for the Browns saying it is, quote, in the best interest of both sides, the relationship is too far gone to mend. It is in the best interest of both sides to move on, end quote. The Browns, however, have informed Mayfield's camp that they are, quote, not accommodating his request. And besides the rest of all that, Deshaun Watson will not be, be traded to the Cleveland to the Cleveland Browns because he has denied to be traded there because he does have the power in his contract to do so. So, Ben, which side looks worse here? Is it Baker or Cleveland? I honestly think it's the Cleveland Browns. And it's hard for me because I think Andrew Barry is a really good GM, and I've liked what I've seen from Kevin De- Kevin Stefanski, at coach for the Browns in his two seasons. But this, the way that they have running ran this thing is classic Cleveland Browns, and not something that I would have expected out of Andrew Barry because I have thought very highly of him, and I thought he's a very good general manager. He's constructed a great roster, but the way they have handled this is classic Cleveland Browns dysfunction, and. I am totally in Baker's corner on this one, despite the fact that he is not. He had a really bad last season. Um, he has not played great football as of late. For them to have the nerve to go out and be seriously interested in Deshaun Watson, and then have uh, the stories leak out there about. Um, where they want an adult at quarterback. They don't like yeah. Baker Mayfield's personality. And that that may be true. They may want an adult at quarterback. And I think Baker handled those rumors really, really well. And then for them to miss out on Watson, and when Baker says, I don't feel the love here whatsoever, and I feel like it would be better for my career to go somewhere else, and for them to just deny that right away, not even offer the opportunity to seek somewhere, um, I, th- I don't think anyone would really disagree that there's other situations for Baker that would be much better than, than Cleveland. And I think for for the Browns to treat the whole situation like they did, actively look for an upgrade, even be rumored with other quarterbacks like Matt Ryan and other names out there, I think to actively do that and then turn around and after after Baker um, had, had who had handled it pretty well this entire offseason, I think then to turn around and, I mean, the, the trade request got out yesterday morning and the denial was came back within like 30 minutes. So I, I think the Browns look bad here. I think it looks like dysfunction. And I don't necessarily think that... I don't think they had a plan coming into this offseason. That's what I, what I keep talking about. It's not something I expected out of Andrew Barry because I thought he'd done a really good job so far and had a clear view in building this roster. But they clearly did not have a plan here because it was coming the offseason with Baker's our quarterback, and then it's shifted to, oh, well, there's some potential upgrades out there, and now it's back on Baker's our quarterback. So um, in my eyes, this is clear dysfunction on Cleveland's part. They look bad here, and I, I thought, I for the most part, I thought Baker handed it well, and I was not, I was not, I was not upset at Baker whatsoever yesterday when he had the trade request. I didn't think that what he said was childish, and I thought it was it made a lot of sense. So that's that's my thoughts. It's the past that has bit Baker Mayfield. It's what he's done in the past. I think it's Baker, unfortunately. Um, I'm not going to exonerate the Browns' front office because they've allowed some of this stuff to happen. For example... Baker Mayfield, as a second-year quarterback, was allowed to choose Freddie Kitchens as his coach. What quarterback in the league is a baby would be allowed to choose his head coach? Freddie Kitchens had absolutely no head coach experience going into that job. And we saw how that ended. It was a disaster. But... 
the way in what he says on social media is what bites him because he acts like he's the Aaron Rodgers of the world, the Tom Brady's of the world. What he says and what he does outside of the field, you would think that he's a top five quarterback. You got to be able to back what you say on social media and you got to be able to back it up on the field with your production because at the end of the day, the NFL is a business. You get paid due to your results. You don't get paid to what you said on social media the last time I checked. And it's what he does with his teammates, too. For example, Odell Beckham Jr., what he did, there are reports saying the dude didn't throw the football to him in practice. That is a big deal. Odell Beckham Jr., the last time I checked, once he got out of Cleveland, he looked pretty damn good in Los Angeles with Matthew Stafford. So I am still confused to this day how Kevin Stefanski, whether that is him or not, in Baker Mayfield could not somehow incorporate Odell Beckham Jr. into the offense because Sean McVay did it perfectly fine before he got injured in the Super Bowl. I thought he did a really good job, honestly. But when you look at this Cleveland Browns, the years that Baker Mayfield has been, it's not Andrew Barry's fault at all because he's supported him with plenty of weapons. you got a backfield of Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. You've had tight ends in Austin Hooper. You've had Jarvis Landry. You've had Odell Beckham Jr. You've had Nadokic. Uh, I mean, you had, t- you had uh, uh, Rashad Higgins. You look at all these weapons, Donovan Peoples-Jones, you've had plenty of pieces to work with. You've had a good defense the majority of the time. But you look at all these pieces, especially last year, and you look all around, and the one weak link who it was, it was Baker Mayfield. He was the weak link as to why the Cleveland Browns were awful last season. They were trash, okay? The year the year before, they versed the Cleveland or the Kansas City Chiefs rather in the AFC championship game, and they lost. But they should have won that game because Patrick Mahomes went down. And when you look at this in its its totality, you got to really see the picture here of Baker Mayfield acting like this is all about him. Because, yes, it's all about him, but at the same time, he has made decisions that are not his decisions. And at the same time, he has almost set this uh, this football team back because how he acts. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a very fair point. I do want to point out with some of the receiver issues, Part of it has been on Baker, yes, for his inaccuracy during games and his inability to put the ball where it needs to be. But I do want to remind you, part of this issue could be, because if you remember, we've had all these receivers leave Cleveland mm. because they weren't getting the ball, they weren't they weren't getting enough targets. Just, just hear me out. Who was calling the plays in Minnesota when Stefan Diggs wanted out because he wasn't getting the ball? Mm, you're Kevin, right. Stefanski Kevin Stefanski was calling. His offense is run the ball and play action, take the deep shots when it's there. He wants to play a run-first offense, and he has Nick Chubb to do that. Mm. And I'm not trying to take the blame off Baker whatsoever because there were plenty of times where I watched and Odell was getting open and Baker didn't look his way. But I just want to say that's the offense they want to run in Cleveland under Kevin Stefanski. He wants to be a run-first play-action team, and you could see that in both stops that Stefanski has been. There has been some receivers that just didn't like it, and Odell had every right to be because he's much better as a receiver than the production. And I don't I don't even need to say that. We all know that. We've been talking about that for months. Exactly. So, um, it's Baker certainly is a problem, but I think it could have been handled better, and 
part of the blame has to be for as good as Stefanski was in year one, he certainly has his faults, and that is as the the inability to kind of adapt to today's style of NFL football is certainly something that I think could hinder Kevin Stefanski for years to come as a play caller. All right, we're going to leave it at that. Everyone, thanks for tuning in to Around the Waves on KCOU 88.1 FM Columbia, the student voice of your Missouri Tigers. Have a good Friday, and we will see you next week.